This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. You know, over the years as a professional jazz musician, I have played hundreds and hundreds of gigs and I've really experienced the entire spectrum of experiences as a gigging musician. I've experienced some of the worst gigs ever, like horrible working conditions, uh, near disasters, or just difficult people to work with. I've experienced amazing gigs, incredible musicians, incredible experiences, maybe fancy gigs that I've attended or worked with. I've experienced ones that taught me a lot of lessons. I've experienced others that made me want to go and hang my head in shame when I got home. I've experienced a lot. I'm excited to do a very special episode where I go through a bunch of different gigs that I've played and show you the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the lessons that I've learned from all of them. This is going to be a lot of fun. Go get your favorite beverage, get your favorite snack, and let's do this thing. Welcome to the LJS Podcast, where you get weekly jazz tips, interviews, stories, and advice for becoming a better jazz musician. And now your host, he's a jazz musician, author, and entrepreneur, Brent Bartstra. Hey, what's up, everybody? Brent here from LearnJazzStandards.com, which is a blog, a podcast, videos, and a membership, all geared towards helping you become a better jazz musician. Welcome, by the way, if this is your first time ever listening, and know that if this is your very first episode of the LJS podcast, it's not our typical episode. Normally, we're talking about tips, tricks, tactics for becoming a better jazz improviser on this show for all instruments. Today, I like to switch things up a little bit on the show every once in a while, and I'm going to be talking about my gig experiences as a professional jazz musician. Like I said in the intro, I've experienced the entire gamut, lots of different stuff. So I'm going to be going over a series of different uh, categories of types of gigs, uh, experiences, stories that go along with them, and uh, some some really cool experiences, some pretty bad experiences, and uh, sh- share with you what I've learned through them. It'll both be a fun episode for you just to kind of you know get behind the scenes of what have I, I've experienced as a professional jazz musician, and hopefully also along the way you'll learn a thing or two uh, as well. We're going to be talking about the most enjoyable long-term gig I've ever played, the most enjoyable overall gig I've ever played, the worst gig I've ever played, the fanciest gig I've ever, I've ever played, the worst working conditions, the most difficult, the the most lucrative, the worst paying one, the best learning experience, the most uh, life impacting gigs, and a few others. So this will be uh, a great, uh, you're going to want to stick around for this episode. Now, before we do that, of course, today's episode is sponsored by our very own LJS Inner Circle membership. This is the membership you need to be a part of if you want to take your jazz playing to the next level. It doesn't matter what instrument you play. We have all sorts of instruments inside of the Inner Circle. In fact, we have over a thousand members playing all sorts of instruments we're working on jazz standard studies every single month together in our jazz standards club we're working on all kinds of practice programs and courses that actually help you get results in your playing give you step-by-step processes we do monthly live q a's in our monthly jazz mastermind we do basic one-on-one courses to fill in the gaps in your musical knowledge the community is incredible and we just recently launched 
four of our instrument accelerator courses, guitar, bass, trumpet, and sax accelerators to help you get the technical side of playing those instruments down. Next month, we've got Jazz Piano Accelerator come out. And if you don't play any of those instruments, don't worry. Like I said, we have all kinds of players in the Inner Circle, accordion players, vibes players. I mean, you name it, we got it inside the Inner Circle, and it's just a lot of fun. So if you want to accelerate your jazz playing, if you want to join a community that is really powerful and impactful, then go to ljsinnercircle.com, ljsinnercircle.com. See if the membership is right for you. It probably is. Sign up, and we'll be excited to have you as a member. Okay, so without further ado, let's jump right into those gigs. All right, so let's talk about some of the good stuff first. Lead with some good news, right? What were some of the some of the more pleasant experiences I had as a gigging musician? So uh, let's go ahead and talk about the most enjoyable long term gig I've ever played. Now, when I say long term, you know, as a musician, sometimes you get these one off gigs, uh, private parties, or something else. And they come and then they go and you're, you know, looking for the next gig or you get offered another gig or what's, well, you know, whatever happens to be. But long term gig is, you know, a weekly sort of a idea where every single week, uh, for the most part, you can expect that you're going to have this gig. And I've had, uh, you know, quite a few of those actually, but you know, the one that really comes to mind that I would say is the most enjoyable one is one at this, uh, speakeasy that I did for three years called Garfunkel's. Uh, now the reason this was enjoyable is, uh, because first of all, it, it, w- it was a decent band. Like we had a guitar, we had sax, we had bass, we had drums. So it was a full quartet. And as a musician, you don't always get that, especially as like a guitar player. Sometimes you're just playing duo or solo guitar or you're playing trio, which is fun too. But you're getting a quartet with drums and all that stuff. I mean, that's a, that, that's a fun, right? It's, it's, it's kind of the, the jazz uh, combo playing experience you want to have. So that, first of all, is, is part part of the fun there. The second part that made it enjoyable for me is, uh, I mean, they were mostly made up my friends who were playing. So had good relationships with everybody. And that's one of the biggest parts of being a musician, right? Is just having those relationships and building relationships with the other musicians and sharing musical experiences together, which are some of the more deeper and intimate experiences you can kind of have with somebody on this strange meta, you know, level, I suppose you could say. Now, the other thing that made this gig really enjoyable to always come to every single week was also just the atmosphere. So first of all, it was a speakeasy. You, you know, went into this burger restaurant and in the back there was this door with like, you know, like, like the lock, like where it's like, uh, you like a wheel and you've got to put in the right combination and you turn, turn the wheel and you open it up. So it was like a, a, you know, it's a speakeasy kind of, uh, mimicking environment. And then you go upstairs to this room. It's it's dimly lit. It, there's like all these you know private little table areas. Uh, the bar is there. The the bartenders are dressed up really nice. It's just one of those cool environments. We dressed up kind of nice. So it just was a it was just a fun atmosphere. It was in the Lower East Side in New York City. So it's got all it's got all the vibes going for it. Now another thing that made it really enjoyable was the musician's best friend, the bartender Freddie. Born and raised in Brooklyn. I mean, that guy, he loved to make drinks. He was good at making drinks. I mean, he still is. He still works there, from my understanding. 
like very much so a mixologist. Like he knew that I liked Sazeracs and I liked Manhattans and any of those rye and whiskey drinks. And he would just come up with a concoction and I would just basically walk in the door and he's got a drink ready for me. Uh, let's just say at that gig, sometimes one too many drinks were consumed because Freddie was a little bit liberal with, uh, uh, you know, hanging out with the musicians. Uh, but that was also a lot of fun. It sort of felt like a, a community atmosphere. The bartender was happy because the music was bringing a lot of the excitement to the entire room, which was, of course, causing people to buy more drinks, which means he's getting more tips and everybody's happy. Right. And that's kind of what the whole live music thing is really supposed to bring to a business, uh, make everybody happy uh, in involved, like the customer, the musicians, the bartenders and hopefully the owner, too. Um, and so it was just a really fun gig that you could always rely on to be, uh, you know, a good time, warm vibes, good vibes all the time. Uh, and it was also one of those gigs too, where, uh, it wasn't so rigid. You know, some gigs are very, uh, rigid, like, okay, 45 minutes and then a 15 minute break and then, you know, 45 minutes and a 15 minute break. And, you know, that's, that's good to do. I think it's good to be punctual and to be professional. But this is one of those gigs where we would obviously play the amount of time we were supposed to play to get paid. But it was a lot more loose and things always didn't always have to be, uh, you know, exactly perfect. Not to mention the food was incredible. Like some of the best burgers I've ever had because we were getting food from the burger place downstairs. So just a good time. I'd always get home at like one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but, you know. A lot of fun. So, uh, funnest long-term gig uh, was at Garfunkel's playing at that speakeasy. Probably the runner-up would be one I actually played for five years, and that was at this uh, restaurant. It was a brunch gig on Saturdays called Henry's. And the reason that one was fun, it was just a duo, just me and a bass player. It was just my good friend Wallace Stelzer, who actually made our Jazz Bass Accelerator course for our, our inner circle. Um, but we were just really good friends. We were friends in college. So, uh, you, you know, you could, it's basically, you know, uh, an excuse to see your friend and play some music every single Saturday. So it was just a good time. Uh, and so those long-term gigs were impactful for me. Um, uh, okay. Now let's go to the next category here. So the next category is the most enjoyable gig overall. Um, so the most enjoyable gig overall. Now this one was really difficult and I almost feel like I... I'm just, like I've played so many gigs. It's I'm probably missing out on some like really fun ones that I've done. Um, and I also had a hard time kind of capturing this because most enjoyable could mean a lot of different things. It could mean musically. It could mean like I was just mentioning with Garfunkel's the environment. Um, but this one it's actually kind of a long term gig too because I played it for seven years, but it was only one time a year. It's this Christmas party on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, New York City at uh, this luxury apartment. And every year, uh, the person that ran the HOA, whatever it is, would email me and say, hey, Brent, are you and your band uh, good to play the Christmas party again this year? And I would always say, yes, of course. Now, there's a few things that made this um, very enjoyable. So let's go back to the, the reason I gave for the, the, my favorite long-term gig. Uh, the band was my favorite musicians to play with. So Wallace, my friend uh, who I was just talking to you about on the bass, I I was playing guitar. And then my favorite drummer to play with, Diego Maldonado. Uh, He did uh, one of the workshops at our Learn Jazz Live uh, Summit this year. Uh, Incredible drummer. And, you know, these are all, they're my friends from college. Like, I mean, we've spent hours and hours and hours together. We learned how to play music better together. 
So there's just that bond, right? And again, that's that's one thing that I think a lot of us, you know, you, uh, you know, of course, most people listening to this show are are not professional musicians like me. You're a hobbyist, but that's part of what makes it fun, right? You're getting to go out and hang out with other musicians, and ho- most of the time they're your friends, and it's just it's a good time, right? And that's part of what makes the draw of being a musician in any capacity fun. So uh, being able to play with those guys, especially when you know. As, you know, life moves on, I didn't always get to play with them or even see them. So there was that one time a year where I knew, like, okay, I'm going to be able to see Diego and Wallace. We're going to be able to play trio. Like, we used to play a bunch of trio gigs together every single week. And so it's kind of like bringing it back and keeping it together, sort of. So that's one reason. Other reason was just, um, I mean, it was just, it was kind of a, just a fun environment. It was, it's just a party. Like, there was just a massive spread of food, uh, you know, so in between our breaks where they would be doing raffles and all this stuff, uh, lots of food to eat. Uh, I'm a glutton, so, you know, I like to go to town on all that stuff. Uh, of course, you know, open bar, stuff like this, uh, musician's best friend, the open bar. <laughs> uh, so, you know, a good time. And, and then at the end of the gig, without fail, it was kind of funny. The the guy who was, you know, hiring us from in, from in the building... Uh, would go and he's like, hey, I, I forgot how much uh, we agreed on, even though we've been doing the gig for seven years, and in the emails it says how much money we're owed to play the gig. But he almost always gave us $100 extra each, which is pretty cool. And then he would always direct us at the end of the night while everybody's leaving. He'd be like, uh, hey, we have way too much alcohol here. Please, uh, you know, take some home. So <laughs> we'd always, you know, pack our our instrument cases with, you know, a few bottles of beer or something to bring home. So just, you know, a good gig, a lot of fun. Uh, one where you always like, it's, it's more of a sentimental sort of thing. Right. Uh, so that's one of my favorite, uh, overall enjoyable gigs. Um, let's go ahead and change gears a little bit. Now, those were a few enjoyable gigs and we'll get to some more that have enjoyable aspects to them. Uh, but now let's go to the worst overall gig uh, I've ever played. Worst overall gig. Uh, Again, this was kind of a little bit uh, tricky to identify for myself because worst uh, could mean a lot of different things. It could mean the musicians you were playing with were horrible or you were horrible. You know, a lot of a lot of things that it could have meant. For me, though, like I knew which gig it was right away. So there's this singer and I'm not going to name the singer. Um, She's great. I don't want it like it has nothing to do with her, but uh, just in case, I don't want to name her. (laughs) Um, The singer that I play with quite a bit, and uh, we play lots of gigs together. Now, first of all, it was a duo gig, so guitar and and vocals. And I'll say to you, like for me personally, as a guitar player, those are the most difficult gigs to play as a jazz improviser because. It, it's it's you know really the ultimate like you know the, you I have to be really good with time I've got to be able to play good intros for the singer um, I've got to be able to read charts on the fly uh, because you know the, they're never in the same key that I would know the tunes in uh, you know sometimes you can transpose it quickly sometimes not so but you're reading a charts a lot uh, then of course when the singer stops singing and they want you to solo it's it's tricky right because you're you're trying to comp and solo and for guitar it's a little bit tricky it's kind of one of the technical 
problems with playing the guitar, I suppose. So you're sort of like playing solo guitar, but with solo guitar, you can kind of play a little bit more liberally. You know, maybe you don't have to always play in time. But when you're playing with a singer, you you have to play in time. So how do you do that? How do you navigate that? That was always a challenging gig for me. And I played plenty of them. And they were always ones, uh, you know, to be quite honest, I wouldn't always look forward to them because it's like it's going to be a gig where I'm going to feel exhausted by the end of it. OK, so first, let's set the stage there. Uh, duo gig with a singer. Uh, and she great singer, though, really good singer. So that, that that's not a problem. It's more the uh, circumstances. Um, okay, so this gig was in Central Park in Manhattan, and uh, for anyone who's been to Central Park or been to New York um, and has explored this area of the park, um, there's the Central Park Boathouse. There's this kind of lake. Well, there's a few lakes in Central Park, but there's this one big lake, and there's like this boathouse where you can rent paddle boats and go out onto the lake, and I've done it before with my wife. It's it's fun. It's very romantic, They're, uh, you know, going through Central Park. But uh, for this occasion, inside the boathouse, there's a big, you know, uh, convention area, I guess you would call it, or just, you know, area where you could host parties or events or things like that. And I forgot exactly what this event was for, but it was like a gala of sorts. And we were the entertainment. We were the background music uh, and, you know, sort of sort of the gig where you're playing and people are drinking and eating and mingling. And then someone comes up and speaks. And so while that's happening, you take a break. That's the kind of gig it was Uh, paid really well. So that wasn't a problem. Um, But here's the problem. When I got to the gig, I opened my guitar case and I realized that uh, and, and for the for those who don't play the guitar, where you plug in your guitar with the cable there's this kind of a nut that holds the i don't even know the name of it the component that you plug it into that you plug your cord into uh so that you're gathering sound from your pickups and it's going into whatever your amplification is well i discovered that that nut had somehow come completely off in my case and the apparatus that you plug the thing into had fallen completely inside of my guitar. Um, and it's a hollow body guitar, but you, you, you can't really, the, the F holes, you can't really reach your hands in there to grab it. Like it's impossible to do. And, uh, I've only had that happen to me one other time. And to do that, they like, I had to bring it to a guitar shop. They had to take a special tool and fish it out. There was no way that I was going to be able to do this, and the gig started in 30 minutes. So I came on with a complete panic, right? I was just like, oh, my God, like, I don't have any amplification. This is a big room. Uh, The singer has a microphone, is going to be singing through a sound system. I was supposed to be plugging into the sound system. Um, So it's if the gig starts in 30 minutes. Uh, I tell the singer, which was awkward, and she was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, and she's freaking out. And I'm like starting to like look through my contact list, like who lives near here and could just get on a train really quickly or run over here. Nobody, nobody I knew lived near Central Park. I mean, that's where (laughs) rich people live. And for, you know, musicians don't tend to be that rich. So, you know, I mean, no one could get there in time for the gig to start. So it was a huge problem. So luckily, I guess the lucky part of this situation was... Because there was a sound system there, which is often not the case with gigs, but because it was like a gala, there was a sound system. Luckily, what they could do is there was like an amplifier mic 
And what we did is we set up the mic and we put it just right in front of, you know, the sound holes on my guitar. Now, the problem with that, of course, is like I'm trying to strum and not hit the mic. (laughs) The other problem with that is there's like no tone, right, coming out. Like you're just getting like the raw sound of your strings is all you're really getting. Um Oh man, it just, it was so stressed. I remember like my blood pressure was probably like through the roof. I was just completely shot and nervous. And so it, it, it was so dip first, it was so impossible to hear anything I was playing. First of all, I mean, the sound system was pointing outwards. You were getting this tinny little sound from the guitar because it wasn't being amplified properly. Um, it, it was just, you know, it was stressful. Uh, the singer didn't seem to mind actually, which made it better. Like she could have been super uncool about it and like upset, but you know, she was, she was okay. Uh, <laughs> she was okay with it. I was not okay with it. I was, I was freaking out. I felt like I was doing a horrible job musically cause I couldn't hear myself. It was just horrible conditions. Right. Um, so that's one of those gigs where I'll just always remember the panic and just how poor I felt the product was. You know, although at the end of the day, you know, people in between the breaks would come up and be like, hey, you guys sound great. And, you know, all you do is you just smile and nod. Right. Uh, So that's definitely my worst gig. (laughs) The Central Park gig. I'll never forget that gig. And I've I've played some bad gigs, but that one for me, I thought it was all going to fall apart. And luckily, uh, there were a few circumstances that allowed it not to fall apart. So that was a tough one. Um, okay, let's go to another negative one. The worst working conditions. Oh, man, the worst working conditions. Now, I won't name this restaurant. Um, I do think they are still in existence. Uh, another one that was actually off of Central Park, not in Central Park, but off of Central Park. And um, I was playing this gig with my friend Steve, who's another guitar player, really good guitar player. So it was actually uh, a guitar player duo. I think we we somehow hunted it down like... You know, back when we were, this was when we were in college, actually, and we were literally going down the streets, walking in, handing out our business cards, trying to talk to managers to hustle some gigs. And that's how we, at that time, got a lot of gigs. And either me or Steve got the gig. And we used to play a lot of duo together when we went to college in Seattle together. So, you know, it was fun to play a duo gig. But here's the deal like, I don't know what with this, what it was, but inside of this restaurant there was actually a stage there where you could play you know you could actually play music on this stage they had a stage actually there set up however the owner of the restaurant wanted us to play it's hard to describe like when you walk through the door you can basically like see the kitchen right away and then if you go just to the left then you go into the main dining room but there's like this tiny narrow like five foot six foot hallway between where the kitchen is and where the bathrooms are to the right and the dining room is to the left and for some reason she wanted us to be playing right at the entrance in this like tiny five foot long i don't know five foot wide maybe a little longer than that maybe 10 foot wide hallway and i guess not really a hallway just like a you know a transition uh, area so essentially she wanted us to play straight to a wall it was kind of like the uh, musicians shall be heard and not seen sort of a situation. So very awkward, first of all. And then because uh, we were sitting to the back of the kitchen, there's like a window that opened up to the kitchen. There's just all this heat coming like on the back of our heads. So it was just like you're always like kind of sweating a little bit and you're playing to a wall. You're like, why am I playing to a wall? Uh 
the sound it didn't make sense because like our amps were facing the wall and like the, like could anybody in the dining room truly hear us uh the pay was like not that great we were like it was actually it was bad we were getting paid like 50 dollars for a three-hour gig um so not good but you know we were in college trying trying to get some money trying to get some pizza money right to 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 you know pay for some food and of course you know a lot with a lot of music music uh, gigs part of the deal is you get fed right and we did we got fed but for some odd reason and we and we couldn't figure this out um the waiters and and waitresses just did not like us they were very rude to us they were mean to us and uh I think it was partly because they didn't like serving us, but we couldn't serve ourselves, right? So they had to, you know, come and ask us what we wanted to eat and bring out our food. And then, you know, we didn't think we should go. We weren't told to go back in the kitchen and like, because we're not, we don't work at the restaurant. So they'd have to take our, our plates away when we were done. And they were just always mean to us and like told us we were in the way in that little hallway corridor, which obviously we knew that, but like, that's what we were, you know, it wasn't our fault. And one day, like, one of the waitresses who was really kind of nasty to us was like, hey, you guys, I'm tired of cleaning up for you. You guys need to bring your plates into the back uh, and, you know, get rid of you know, them and give them to the dishwasher. And we're like, OK, that's fine. <laughs> but anyways, so we just we were kind of treated poorly. And then on top of that, uh, we were getting paid in checks, like 50, $100 checks. And then I would have to pay out Steve. But. At least four different times, the checks bounced, and I'd have to call the owner up and be like, "Hey, the the check bounced," and you know it would be like a whole to do just for like fifty bucks. But we, you know, hauled all of our gear down to Central Park, and you know what I mean. It was just not fun, and we did that for a while until one day uh, they fired us, <laughs> and, that, and that was the end of that gig. Uh, you know, but probably for the better. Even though it was fun playing with Steve Duo, uh, it, it was probably for the better that uh, that gig died because it, it was just uh, poor conditions, poor working conditions. Uh, and I was trying to think of other ones that we had, I, I, but there's definitely been gigs where like like foul play definitely occurred. I'm thinking of one where me and my band went all the way out to Astoria in Queens uh, from Harlem, which is where we lived, hauled all of our, our gear over there. And then when we showed up, the owner said, oh, no, actually, sorry, uh, we don't need you because there's just not enough customers today. And we're like, yeah, but <laughs> you can't just do that just because you said that we do have a gig today, but because you don't like how many customers are there, you can't just not pay us to come all the way out. And so it was a whole to-do Uh I, I'm a stubborn person, so we ended up getting paid. Um, but yeah, so that that was a whole thing. I mean, I've had a lot of other like negative experiences with like owners of bars and restaurants where there was tension or we were treated poorly. Um, so, oh man, that happens, man. That happens. Not good stuff. Not good stuff. Don't take those gigs. Like, leave them. It's just not worth it. Um, Okay, so that was some negative experiences. Uh, let's go to some more positive experiences. So let's talk about the fanciest gig I've ever played. And I've played some fancy gigs. I played some rich people's children's uh, part of birthday parties. Uh, you know, I've played some lavished events, some gal- some nice galas, some uh, 
you know, some good gigs. Uh, this particular gig was with that same singer that I had my worst gig at Central Park with. Um, it was her, me, and a bass player. And it was in Long Island. So for those of you who don't understand the region, the New York metropolitan region, you've got New York City and there's Manhattan. And then there's this big Long Island that comes out and it's called Long Island. And uh, it's it's not uh, it's not part of the city anymore. Technically, it's it's more like suburban uh, sprawl, I suppose you could call it. Uh, that's where the Hamptons is, you know, all that stuff. Uh, so, anyways, this was a wedding gig, and first of all, there was a car that uh, was paid for that came and picked us up and drove us all the way out there. It's like an hour and a half drive from Midtown Manhattan all the way to this venue for this wedding in Long Island. Now, when I when we got to the venue. Uh, this was like no other venue had ever seen in my life. Like it, it was literally like a castle. Like uh, I think it's even advertised sort of as like a castle. I mean, not like a medieval castle, but like it was just a huge complex, massive, uh, incredible garden up front, fountains. Uh, there's a golf course in the back, and the people that were having their wedding there had rented out the entire thing. Like the in, the entire property, so acres and acres and acres of land, and uh, just to give you an idea, like there were three different bands. We were just one of the bands. We were the band that was playing the cocktail hour, basically, and the reception. Okay, the cocktail hour and the reception, but for guests when they were arriving, they had like a string quartet playing, and then. For the after party, right? Like the, uh, I, well, I guess it's the, I guess it's the. Uh, so we were playing for the dinner, but the reception afterward with all the dancing. Then there was like a, a massive band, like party band, playing for that. So first of all, they had plenty of uh, room in their budget for musicians. But kind of what astonished me was just the wait staff that was. I mean, I, I don't know the exact number, but there had to be over fifty people working this wedding. Uh, so there were servers, there was wedding coordinators, people running around, uh, people ushering people. I mean, it was just like very like, I mean, the amount of money they must have spent alone on just all the staff that were there. The other thing was the food. So when you got there, first of all, they're passing out all kinds of fancy food. And then there is another section uh, of the complex before the wedding even started that had like a full-on buffet going on like amazing like prime rib you name it they had it uh then after the cocktail hour like they had a whole other set of food come in the dinner was like incredibly fancy the amount they must have spent on the flowers inside of the this this the reception room was just like astonishing i mean i mean if you've ever planned a wedding before you know how expensive these things are so exp- like I couldn't believe it. Um, the 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 woman's family was from like London, clearly upper elite class. The guy's family was from there in Long Island, like obviously very upper class people, uh, dressed like it, talked like it. It was just kind of a funny environment, um, you know. And it's it's just very lavished. Like I just and of course we got paid ridiculously well. It, it was. You know, it was just a great, great time. It was, it was, a, it was a good wedding. Um, so that's probably the fanciest gig 
I've ever played uh, where you sort of felt like uh, as a musician, you were sort of uh, hanging out with a crowd you probably wouldn't have had access to if it weren't for the fact that you were going to play some uh, nice uh, music for their party. <laughs> that was the, that was the kind of vibe I got. And I've gotten that vibe from a, a good handful of gigs, but that was a good example of one uh, right there. So fanciest gig in Long Island at this ca- at this castle. Very very interesting. Okay, let's go to the next category, and that is the most difficult gig I've ever played. Most difficult gig. So the way I'm defining most difficult is uh, most difficult musically, um, as in. As a musician, it was very challenging for me. Uh, so, actually, the musician who did our Jazz Sax Accelerator course uh, in our inner circle that we just came out with, Josiah Bornesian, he was the band leader on this gig. Now, this was back in my early days of college. That's actually how I met Josiah Bornesian. He's actually been a guest on this podcast, too, if you uh, go look him up in the uh, the archives. But... You know, I met I met Josiah like my my junior year of college or something like that. And Josiah, even though we're the same age, he was actually there at the City College of New York, which is my alma mater. He was actually there getting his master's degree in jazz performance. Okay, so I was just getting my bachelor's degree. He was getting his master's. I think he went on to get his PhD and a master's and something else. And one of those guys like. He was just a genius, a musical genius. Like, it felt like he could improvise anything. His composition skills were just out of this world, are just out of this world. And if you ever get a chance to look him up, look him up, Josiah Bornesia. I mean, incredible. Uh, Check out his Jazz Sax Accelerator course in our inner circle as well. Um, So one thing about Josiah is that the kind of music he likes to compose uh, is very what I, I guess, for lack of better terms, modern jazz. And what I mean by modern jazz is he loves to mess with time signatures and he loves to mess with, um, you know, superimposing different uh, time signatures over 4 4 and weird feelings and rhythmic patterns. And it sounds really good. It's, it's in all the good ways of modern that makes modern jazz good. It's good. Like, cause it can be bad. It can just sound like jazz math. And that's not usually to me as interesting. It just sort of sounds like complexity for the sake of being complex. I, I find his music to be very organic and very well thought out and composed. However, uh, incredibly difficult. And so he hired me for this gig at this really, uh, hipster uh, you know performance like center not a center even it was just kind of like this little i don't know how you a little loft little performance loft in brooklyn and uh you know totally totally hipster brooklyn kind of a vibe place and he hired me to play this gig there uh this it, it was a performance it wasn't even like background music it was a performing gig and he hands me the music and it was just like, I mean, time signatures like 7-4 uh, going on to 11, then you're switching to uh, 13, and then, then you're playing in 4-4, four, four, but the uh, the sax player is playing in a different time signature at the same time. And, I mean, then the harmony of the music is just, again, to your ears when you're listening to it, it sounds amazing. But when you see what the harmony actually is, I mean, it's just like, how do I... Like for someone like me who's really uh, rooted in the tradition of playing jazz, like two five one chord progressions, one six two fives, like that I can do pretty well. 
on this I I just did not know I did not know how to improvise over top of these chord changes like so I spent like weeks working on this music trying to memorize it um, playing along with the recordings because he had like an album out that had these recordings on them you know I was trying to my best to do this and on top of that like he didn't hire a piano player to to be any accompaniment I was the accompanist and I was playing lines it w- it was just difficult. Now, I did manage to play the gig. I, I wouldn't say I played the gig well, though, like as far as an improvise. Like, I do not think my improvisation was very good. It was more like me just hanging on by a thread, right, the whole time, just trying to make like I was not comfortable the entire time. Uh, I don't think Josiah cared. I mean, <laughs> but I, I, I was just like, wow, I this is just not me. Like, I'm not good at this. Like, it's not the way my brain works. And it's the, especially at that time, I wanted to play like that. I really wanted to be um, playing that modern New York jazz thing. And I still love that music as a listener, but I'm just not really, uh, it's just not the way I'm trained to play. And so, uh, you know, eventually I kind of just realized that's not really my thing. So I don't need to do that. Right. But at the time, like for me, I was trying to do that. And man, it was just, very difficult gig to play one of those where I stressed out about it so much because I just was nervous I wouldn't be able to nail it you know so so many hours just to prepare for this gig that I'm pretty sure I got paid like a hundred bucks for but um, musically obviously it was great because like I learned a lot from studying his music and I learned a lot from playing his gig I think I ended up playing another one of his gigs too Um, but you know (laughs) Needless to say, like incredibly challenging music, and Josiah Bernasian is just a genius musician, uh, and I just could, <laughs> I would, I don't know if I could keep up, just incredible. But uh, anyways, that was definitely the most difficult gig I think I've ever played musically. Okay, let's switch gears again. Let's talk about the most lucrative gig I've ever played. Okay, now as musicians, uh, professional or non-professional, like a hobbyist like yourself, you may know that it can be difficult to get. Uh, to get paid well to play gigs. And it depends on where you live. It depends on if you're playing the wedding band circuit. It depends on a myriad of factors, right, as to whether it's easy or not. In New York, you can get paid very well, but you can also get paid very poorly. And the reason that is is because, and I'll talk about a gig where I got paid very poorly in a second, but the reason that is is because it's incredibly competitive. Everybody and their dog moves to New York to try to, quote unquote, make it as a jazz musician or study jazz. And so you have tons of college students that are willing to play for nothing. You've got all sorts of competitiveness to play the best gigs that pay the best. It's difficult. It's really difficult to make it as a musician in uh, New York in one sense because of the competition. On the other hand, it's, it's not because it's, there's really so much musical opportunity in New York, and that's why so many people move to New York, like myself, to to play jazz and to play music in general. Um, that all being said, the most lucrative gig I ever had, I actually got through my alma mater, City College in New York, um, and for so, some way or other, there was going to be a conference at the City College in New York. I don't even remember what the conference was. Um, they just, and I don't even know how they found me specifically or how the college, maybe one of my professors connected me with uh, the, the they requested through the music department. I don't remember how it all came about. All I know is I got this gig to 
do the music at this conference. And it was like a four hour, it was a five hour gig, I think. So it was a long gig. Um, but the budget was just like sky high. Like uh, they were, they were going to pay a lot of money for this and they wanted, uh, you know, I think they wanted like six musicians or something like that. Five, like f- five or six musicians to play. So like I hired a great band. I hired, I got Chad Lefkowitz Brown playing the sax, a bunch of amazing players to do this and they're all getting paid very well. But of course I'm also, you know, running the whole gig and I'm picking the music and uh, running the rehearsals and I'm getting the sound people involved. So there's a lot of other parts to it. So I'm obviously taking a higher cut of all this uh, to, to manage this gig um, that kind of requires a little bit more. Uh, so my, my take home for this gig was a little bit north of $1,000. I think it was maybe like $1,250 or something to do this gig for five hours, of course, all the preparation before. Uh, but that was amazing, right? And my band members got paid well too. So everybody was pretty happy. And so I don't think I've ever gotten paid that well for a gig. No, that was the, the that was obviously the most lucrative gig I've ever played. Um, with the exception of I did get, because that conference went well, apparently another conference was coming in to the City College of New York and the person that hired me from that other conference told the other conference person about me, and I got a similar gig, um, like the next year or something like that. Um, so for as a musician, like for me, that's pretty good for five out for one night and the preparation thereof of playing music. Uh, over a thousand dollars that does not come around very often. Uh, so that was a <laughs> that was a big win, uh, especially at the time for me. Uh, okay, well, let's let's talk about the worst paying gig I've ever played. I alluded to the fact that in New York, uh, there are so many people that are literally willing to play free, like to, pl- to play for nothing. And the reason that can even work out is because you have all these bars and music clubs in New York, and they pretty much don't have a problem filling up the spots, even if they're not going to pay you, because there's always somebody that wants to play. And I tend to have this rigid uh, kind of belief that, you know, you should get paid to play at a club, right? I mean, you should get paid to play. And I don't like to go as far as to say how much you should get paid, but you should get paid uh, more than just like a percentage of the door, okay? Because, which is exactly what I did though. (laughs) Um, And so I haven't played very many of these, but I did play at this one club called Silvana in, uh, I think it's in Harlem. Yeah, it's in Harlem in uh, Manhattan, New York City. And th- this was one of those music clubs where like they have like three or four performances a night. Okay. And they essentially give the band a percentage of the cover charge and the drinks that were purchased for the hour that they played. Now, this almost always ends up not being very much money. I don't even remember how much we got. I think we did not get paid very much money at all because it relies on you bringing in people to this club. Like it really does. Like it's basically like the the, the club wins in all senses of the word because they're pay- charging a cover charge. They're not giving you very much of it. Uh, they're making lots of money on drinks, but you know, you're not getting a big cut of that. And usually like people are, musicians are trying to encourage their friends and people to come out to the gigs. So that's how they're getting their customers. Uh, In my opinion, 
doesn't work that well for the musician other than, hey, I've got a great spot to play. The benefits being like, yeah, they have a stage there. They have a sound system. They have a drum set already there. They have all the amplification there. And I played this gig at Silvana because I had composed a bunch of music and I felt like I always only did standards gigs, background gigs, and I wanted to uh, do in a do you know actually put on a performance. I I don't get to actually be the front and center very often. So I wanted to perform my music. So I did put on this gig, and I I don't remember how much I got paid, but I remember it being like you know probably couldn't even pay for my the food I ate after the gig and you know the train ride back home and the, the, there and back. It, it was it was horrible, right? Uh, so I don't recommend like musicians really do these gigs, but I totally understand why they do them. Um, the reason I argue not doing them is because it just hurts the musical economy. And that's why musicians sometimes can struggle to get paid because essentially anytime somebody, uh, like even a hobbyist, is playing a gig for free or for, not, for, for very little money, essentially it's signaling to, it's devaluing the currency of live music essentially is what it does um you know but i don't want to get too far into that or whatever and, or make anybody feel bad if they do play gigs for free i totally get why they do it i mean especially if you're a hobbyist you just you want to play music like that's the whole fun of it is you're going out and playing and there's not that many places um that are that may be willing to pay uh in your area so it, it just depends right um so i'm not judging anybody here at all but that was the worst paying gig uh, i ever had all right, we've got two more gig categories I want to cover here. The uh, second to last one is the best learning experience, okay? And I couldn't I couldn't narrow this gig, the best learning experience gig, down to just one. There's really two of them that I felt um, really I, I learned a lot. Both of these gigs were long-term gigs. They weren't just a one-off gig. They were gigs that I played over a period of time, uh, for for a long time uh and so the first one was with a singer named laura campisi great uh singer from uh, sicily and i played duo with her and this bass player named amin salim Uh, amin salim was to my knowledge the last bass player that played with roy hargrove before he passed away and he played with roy hargrove for years and years and years and years uh by any stretch, like one of the best, you know, bass players out there that's that's alive. Like Amin Salim is like the real deal. Super nice dude. Um, so talented. And to say that I was intimidated by him would be an understatement, even though he gave me no reason to be intimidated by him. He was a very nice guy. Um, but Laura knew him, and so she always got him to do the the gigs. And the gigs, you know, they paid okay. They weren't big paying gigs, but a guy like Amin, when he's not on the road touring with Roy Hargrove or somebody else, you know, he, this is what musicians do. This is what the musicians, musicians do in, in New York. Like if, if they're not like married or something like me, like they don't have anything else to do. If someone's going to offer them a gig, it's something, they just go and do it. Right. They, they take every single gig there is, uh, to play. And so it was a trio gig and yeah, I mean, I totally felt like I was way uh, out of his league, meaning I was below him in talent level. And playing with Amin, you, you'd think that in, in some ways it would be easy because he, he's such a great bass player. 
But in a lot of ways, it wasn't easy. And that's not saying anything about Amin. It's saying something about me because what you find when you're playing with a musician of that caliber is like Amin had perfect time, like rock solid time. And when you're essentially playing duo with a bass player, right? Because there's a, a singer, but it's basically guitar and bass. You know, there's no drums. You know, when he's taking a solo, I'm keeping time for him, right? So it was. It always became very clear that my time was not as good as Amin's because Amin, like, honestly was just improvising and he, he the, the, his time was solid. And for me, uh, it became clear that I was not always playing in time. And there were certain uh, experiences where it was clear that I had gotten off by a chord or two because I wasn't in the same zone as he was. And also, of course, Amin would do some very musically creative things that would sometimes throw me. And he wasn't doing it on purpose. Um, He was just playing the way he wanted to play and the way he thought would fit the musical situation the best. But for me, I just, I mean... I was a lot younger than I am now. I didn't have as much experience. And I was I was a little scared, to be honest, because he's so good. You know, I, I wasn't always quite keeping up with him. And so I had I learned a lot on those gigs. And I played with him a lot. I was very lucky to be able to do that. Um, and Laura's music wasn't always easy, too. So I learned a lot during that gig. Uh, I learned a few things, like, on the emotional level. It's like, you know, not to be so hard on myself. That was one thing that I learned over many, many gigs. But I also just learned like, hey, you're you're naked. Here are your issues. And you're going to these these issues will not resolve unless you really get in the practice room and iron them out. And I felt very exposed playing with a, with a musician at such as such a high caliber as a mean uh, because he was playing on such a high level that I needed to go up to his level and that means that I needed to see where I was lacking and needed to really rather quickly improve so that was one gig that was a great learning experience um, the other gig that I the, it was another long-term gig is with uh, my friend Don Hahn who's actually been on this podcast like way early in the podcast I can't even remember like 30 something 40 something uh, Don Hahn is a trumpet player he used to play with Maynard Ferguson uh, he actually played with Buddy Rich at one point, like incredible uh, horn player. Um, and he likes to hire a bunch of young guys. And so there's this amazing, cool lounge club in the Greenwich Village in Manhattan. So we're like a high concentration of a lot of the jazz clubs are in New York City in Greenwich Village. Uh, the village, as we call it, like there's the, the, the village Vanguard is there, of course. Smalls Jazz Club is there. Uh, Mesro, the, uh, the Blue Note is there. Um, a bunch of these, like the bar next door, uh, 55 bar, a bunch of these little bar clubs, underground clubs. That's like the New York thing. And this one underground club called Fat Cat was like the lounge where like there was pool tables in the back. There was, it was loud and noisy, but there was just incredible, great jazz musicians just there all the time. And I was lucky to be a part of Don Hahn's band for like over five years, five or six years as a part of his band uh, where we would play at Fat Cat uh, once or twice a month. And all the musicians, he always hung, hired younger guys because he's kind of like that. He wanted like you know to get us involved, and uh, you know he he enjoyed being a mentor. Uh, he does enjoy being a mentor. And uh, all the musicians he would hire were just like 
some of the young guys who had come to New York or even grew up in New York, and they really freaking knew how to play. Uh, so I learned a lot about myself being there because I learned, first of all, not to compare myself to the best musician in the, in the room. And I also learned, like, we were playing music on such a high level that I learned to, like, come up to that level, right? Like, I, I just kind of same with playing with Amin Salim, like, I needed to come up to the next level. That gig and playing with those great musicians and playing with Don helped me do that. That helped me uh, dig deep and learn as I was playing, learn on the gig and learn from my mistakes. And I remember one time Don, uh, he didn't tell me, but he recorded it and we were going to some other gig in upstate New York together, just me, him and a bass player. And he's like, oh, Brent, hey, I recorded the, recorded Fat Cat. Here's a tape. And he slides a tape into his car because that's what he had, he had tapes in his car. And we were listening to the recording of, of this Fat Cat gig, and I'm just like, no, Don, do we have to listen to this? And he's like, no, Brent, you sound great, man. You sound great. And I learned that, too. I learned not to be so hard on myself. Don Hahn thought I sounded great. Uh, and so that's an important thing that I, that I learned on that gig as well. So the, those two gigs are my the, the best learning experiences uh, I've had. Okay, the last gig I want to talk about uh, has a lot of sentimental value to me, and uh, this gig category is... The gigs, the gig or gigs that had the biggest life impact, had the biggest impact on my life. So impacted me outside of just uh, music, okay? So my first year of college, I moved to Seattle, Washington, and I went to this college called Cornish College of the Arts. It was an art school. Uh, the next year after that, I moved to New York, but... I lived in Seattle for a year and, you know, I was just fresh out of high school and I really wanted to be a professional jazz musician. I was a total jazz nut, total jazz nerd, took it all way too seriously, all the stuff. Okay. I was the guy who was practicing in the practice rooms in between every single class. I would stay in the practice rooms till midnight and that was me. And then I'd go to the dorms and all that stuff. Uh, well, at some point, you know, me and my friend Steve, who also played that worst working conditions one in that restaurant in uh, Central Park <laughs> with me, well, we, we we met each other there at, in Seattle, and that's where we started playing duo guitar together. We became really good friends very quickly, played a lot of music, and we found this gig in this neighborhood called Capitol Hill. It's like kind of this elevated area of Seattle, which is kind of nearby where the music building of the college was. And it was simply called the Thomas Street Bistro because it was on Thomas Street. And uh, the owner was a very interesting guy. His name was Adam. And Adam, he was from, uh, originally from France, but he lived in Beirut for a while. <laughs> a cre- he has a crazy like story of his life. Uh, before he moved to the United States. Anyways, he opened up this this little restaurant, which literally was a, a, an apartment that was converted into a restaurant. I don't know how he got the zoning permission or any of that to do this, but that's what it was. It was basically uh, the the lower level of an apartment building. Is that's what he made his restaurant out of. And anyways, he loved to hire. Uh, you know, he he's from Europe and he was from. Uh, the middle uh, he spent time in the Middle East and all that stuff, and so he really 
uh, believed in music and live music and the arts and stuff like that. And so he and also enjoyed being uh, in his in his forties, not having any children. Uh, he he loved to support the young college students in the music department. So uh, the way the re, the way that I got the gig and me and Steve got the gig was because uh, we were basically a sub for one of the other music students that had already found the gig and Adam was hiring to play. And they said, "You want to sub in?" And then when Adam heard us play, you know, we started uh, playing regularly there at the bistro, and. Uh, uh, we, we would just play there sometimes five nights a week. So lots of time playing. And honestly, me and Adam, we did not get to get to get along at all. Uh, I was this kind of young kid that had this stubborn attitude and like didn't want to take uh, a very I didn't want to take anything from anybody. Adam also had the, this very intense uh, personality. Uh, and so sometimes we would butt heads quite a bit uh, and not quite get along, even though like we had this like employer sort of. Uh, employed relationship. Um, but over time, strangely enough, it kind of grew into a friendship, you know, where we would go out to coffee together and hang out. And uh, he became more like an uncle than really someone who owned a restaurant and supported me uh, through, uh, through hiring me. And, you know, when I moved to, to New York, you know, Adam was like, hey, you know, let's, let's keep in touch. Uh, and something that he always told me is he said, Hey Brent, you know, you know, I want you to make it as a musician out there. I want you to be able to do this thing and, uh, try the, the best you can, if, if at all possible to only make it off of playing gigs and teaching music, try to make it through music because the minute that you compromise, uh, and, and take another job to try to pay the bills, uh, you know, that it's possible that you could slip into not becoming a musician. And the reason he said that to me is because he had seen a lot of the actors that he had, be, that he had befriended and who worked in his restaurant. That's what happened to them or the other musicians as they slipped into another job and now they're not a musician anymore. So he was warning me of that and he was totally this, you know, follow your dreams kind of a person, kind of a larger than life personality. So, when I moved out to New York, we, we would keep in touch and, you know, I, w- I was always struggling to, to pay for my tuition and stuff like this. Uh, not that I couldn't take out some loans, but I was trying not to take out too many loans because I knew I, w- I wouldn't be making a ton of money as a musician when I got out of college. And so what Adam would do is he, every single summer, he would say, hey, Brent, how about you do this? I know you need to make some money. Why don't I, why don't you fly to Seattle and why don't for 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 the entire summer, you know, I'll, I'll you know you 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 stay here in Seattle. I have a place for you to stay, and you just work and play music at my restaurant every single night, and I'll pay you. And that's what I did. And Adam always had a gig for me every single summer. We played. I played there. Uh, he paid me, but it was more than that. We were friends. He. Uh, we went out to dinner after he was done working at the restaurant. We were done working at the restaurant. You know, we uh, walked his dog around Seattle, uh, just really developed uh, a friendship, even though you know, kind of like a, an uncle nephew friendship. Um, and he and we he did that throughout the, the entire uh, the, in, the the entire time I was in college until uh, unfortunately he did pass away. Uh, uh, 
and uh, that would you know I, I get a little emotional talking about it. He he did pass away from a from a disease. Uh, in which me and an, a, a friend of his, we had to take care of him uh, while he was uh, kind of living his last years. Uh, so, you know, not not the way I like to, to remember Adam so much, but I'll always remember Adam and that gig because if it wasn't for, for him uh, telling me that, right, telling me, Brent, try not to compromise. Try to fall, just try to be a musician. You can do this. Encouraging me. And you did more than just telling me. He showed me, he showed me, you know, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. I'm willing to hire you to play at my restaurant. And honestly, he didn't need to. He didn't need to have me come. He had plenty of people at the college that he could come and, uh, you know, play. But he purposefully would have me come out to Seattle uh, and even a few times paid for my plane ticket to come out uh, when I didn't have a lot of money. So that, that was the gig. I'll never forget Adam. I'll never forget playing at, at his bistro and what that meant to me and uh, how that shaped me uh, to who I am today. So a big thank you to Adam for, for that. That was my biggest life impacting gig at the bistro. Uh, so those are all my gigs. That was a lot of gigs to cover, but hopefully you found this interesting. You found this fun. Uh, learned maybe a little something along the way. Got a little bit of insights of what it's like to be a professional uh, musician. And uh, yeah, that was fun for me to go down memory lane. All right, that's all for today's show. I want to thank you so much for listening. Do appreciate you. This was a lot of fun. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, like I said at the beginning of the show, if you want to improve your jazz skills, go to ljsinnercircle.com. Join our LJS Inner Circle membership. We have a great time there. There's so much material for you to learn from, courses, step-by-step programs, monthly jazz standard studies, But there's really just an awesome, vibrant community of other musicians. I talked about in this episode how, you know, at gigs, a big reason that makes playing music fun is the community with other people. And I think Andre from our Inner Circle membership, uh, one of our members, he said it best. He said, I no longer just play for my wife and my neighbors, his saxophone. I play it for the members of the community, posting my progress, showing what I'm doing. It's motivating, it's inspiring for him, and it's a lot funner than just playing for yourself. And then when you do get to play with other people, you have this background and this support system behind you in the inner circle. So go to ljsinnercircle.com, sign up. We'd love to have you become a member. It's a lot of fun over there. Of course, we're going to be coming out with another great episode next week on the podcast. Until then, happy practicing and cheers. Thanks for listening to the LJS Podcast, brought to you by LearnJazzStandards.com. Subscribe to the series on iTunes, and don't forget to join our jazz community at LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash newsletter. Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. That's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. Learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.